heard me say to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. These words of Jesus from the Gospel according to St. John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today we stand in anticipation of two more great feasts of the church year. Buckle your seatbelts, there's time for more feasting. First, the Feast of the Ascension this Thursday and the Feast of Pentecost, not this coming Sunday, but the Sunday following. These feasts commemorate, respectively, the Lord's ascent to the right hand of the Father and the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the church ten days later. These two feasts speak to the, great to the grace of participation in the triune God which they work. Through the Lord's ascension to the right hand of the Father, human life is brought into the blessed communion of the Trinity. Human life does not sort of drop out of Christ the Son, but is retained. A full human nature at the right hand of the Father. Not far off, but intimately, without reservation. This points to our future end as Christians, the enjoyment of the blessed vision of God forever. That which belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ by nature, fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit will someday be given to us by grace. And on the Feast of Pentecost, we remember that gift which we have already been given, that perfect gift of the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts as a pledge of our status as heirs of the kingdom of God and children of a heavenly Father. And to be clear, it is the ascension itself which makes possible this gift of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. This is often lost in churches today to talk anything about this. As the Lord said this, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. We are reminded by these twin gifts, the gift of the living presence of God in our bodies as temples and the living presence of the incarnate Son of God at the Father's right hand, that the good things of salvation surpass our understanding. Our understanding almost falls apart. I mean, I love the, the great paradoxes of ascension. Is Jesus with us or is he gone? Yes. They surpass all that we can possibly desire. This, put, this is, put simply, the living water spoken of to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. It is water of such quality that the one who drinks of it will never be thirsty again, for it is water welling up to eternal life. This living water speaks to participation in the very life of God. Our reading from Revelation this morning says this, the river, of water, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. What kind of, what kind of city has streets with water flowing in the middle? It'd be some exotic place like New Orleans, I'd think. But those are, those are really sewers, aren't they? Yeah, they're sewers, okay. Right there in the middle of life, crystal water for all to enjoy, water that surpasses any desire that you and I have. Also, he says, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the, tree, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. 
This healing begins in the waters of baptism, whereby we renounce the dead life of sin and embrace a new and risen life with the risen Christ, being buried in his death and raised to newness of life. It is continued in the Eucharist, whereby we participate in the body and blood of Christ, risen and ascended, being made partakers of the divine nature. And all of this is upheld by the indwelling presence and gifts of the Holy Spirit, who intercedes for us constantly, crying out to the Father with deep groaning. Now, if you're like me, you grew up with all of the emphasis in all the teaching, in all the faith, in all the teaching on the gospel placed on the cross. Now, that is not a bad thing at all. The understanding of the cross at the center of the church's proclamation is a mark of vital and careful Christianity that is careful to uphold all that Scripture teaches. Paul says, preach Christ and him crucified. It has always been that. But as I, when I was younger, delved into the church fathers, into the church's tradition, and as I understood sacred scripture in that light, I came to see a need to turn up the volume, not only on the resurrection, but also on the ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost in order to understand the mysteries of redemption fully. Through this, I came to know that not only had the Son of God purchased this redemption for me through his sacrifice on the cross, but that he had defeated death itself through his resurrection, and that he had procured a place for me in the bosom of the Father, and even now pledged all of this by making my body, with all of its disappointments, with all of its proclivities to sin, a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now that is a wonderful thing, is it not? And if you share that experience, know that one of my hopes for our witnesses of Parish Church is to turn up the volume on those things of which the creed testifies, so that we all might know as much as possible the greatness of our salvation. Great indeed, we confess, Paul says, is the mystery of our religion. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And yes, knowledge of these mysteries leads us to be a people full of rejoicing, full of gratitude and surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ because we see that his will is not only to paper over our sin, but to bring the redemption of our bodies, to bring us to bodily worship of the Father in glory. I remember one time we had a house and it had these kind of plaster problems and a friend was over and said, well, you know, just... Just put up wallpaper, you know? Just paper over all the cracks. But I don't want to paper over the cracks. I want to fix them. Maybe someday we'll get to it. But this is redemption. Not to cover over, but to amend, to redeem. That is the vision shown forth to us in the Revelation to John today, where he says, There shall no more be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. Not far off. In it. And his servants shall worship him. They shall see his face. Not with spiritual eyeballs, but with real eyeballs. And his name shall be on their foreheads. I suppose they are spiritual eyeballs, but they're also physical eyeballs. 
This vision is not of a disembodied heaven, but of the servants of the Lamb, worshiping the Lamb with their bodies, seeing his face with their eyes, his name marked on their foreheads. Indeed, that is what we do at every baptism. We mark the cross on the forehead of the newly baptized with sacred chrism, the oil of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, marking them not only with a cross, but with the name of the triune God. Ancient Christians knew just how much this surpassed the paganism of previous generations. Pagans didn't have eternal hope of a redeemed body, redeemed from death. All they could do and all they could hope for was favor with the gods for safety and prosperity in this life. When Paul stretches out his hand to heal that man in today's gospel, it is seen as a blessing from Zeus himself. Because in the imagination of the people, anything good in this life must come from the gods, who many assumed simply ignored daily human life. They believed this, that the gods had forgotten them. That's a terrible place to be, isn't it? To be forgotten? The gospel was good news to them because it not only proclaimed release from the captivity of death, the tyranny of the underworld, but a bodily hope for a full redemption worked by the creator of all things. It was the good news that God had not forgotten the nations, but had remembered them and indeed come among us. Well, fast forward to today. We witness a culture which has forgotten God. The majority of Christians in American pews are, as Christian Smith told us 14 years ago, essentially deists, believing firmly that the God of all is absent to us here on earth. And when we call upon him, he only gives us a sort of pat on the back and says it's going to be okay. But is not with us in our affliction, is not with us in our joy, is not with us in daily life, has nothing to do with the created order. The crisis that afflicts the church today is not a crisis of worship or evangelism. It is not a crisis of politics or of marriage and the family. Those things matter, and they matter a great deal, but they're not at the heart of it. Mark Golley wrote this past week, the crisis the church in America faces is exactly what Alexander Solzhenitsyn said of the West in his day. We have forgotten God. And I stand before you today and say this clearly. If we have forgotten God, we need to remember. And not to remember God in general and what he has done, but to remember who we are because of what he has done. To remember that he himself has remembered us, has not left us to our own devices, has not left us to float the cosmos as orphans, but has taken us to himself, making us by grace what we are not by nature. And it's in that vein that I want to give you, if I can, a summer assignment. The summer assignment is this. If you happen to be anywhere near the place of your baptism over the summer, go visit. Make a pilgrimage. Remember whose you are and how you got there. Have you ever done that, anyone? You should. It's wonderful. <laughs> and, and the second thing is this. Each Sunday, as you approach the altar... Remember, remember, remember what Jesus has done for you. And remember what he's doing for you at this very altar, drawing you into his presence, drawing you to be with him and give thanks for it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.